0: hello and welcome to the king's fund podcast where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care i'm helen mckenna i'm a senior fellow here at the fund and i'm your host for this episode And I'm super excited because today's episode is an election special. We're going to be looking at to what extent health and social care have featured throughout the election campaign. And then we'll look at some of the main themes in the manifestos as they relate to health and care. And we're going to end by discussing what comes next in terms of the reality of implementing those manifestos for whoever is lucky enough to step into number 10 come the 13th of December. And to help us unpack all of this, I'm joined by three wonderful colleagues. We've got Sally, Sivir and Dave. So thank you for joining us. Can you please tell us who you are and what you do here at the Fund? Sivir and Andesiva, do you want to start?
1: Hi, so I'm Sivir and I'm the Chief Analyst here at the King's Fund and mainly work on money, workforce, digital and performance.
0: Fantastic. And Dave
2: Buck. Hello, I'm David Buck and I lead a lot of our work here at the Fund on public health and health inequalities. Lovely
0: and Sally.
3: Hi, I'm Sally Warren. I'm the Director of Policy here at the Fund. So that means I take an interest in all of the policy work we do, but probably my specialist subjects are around social care, population health,
0: uh, and mental health. Great. So let's start by thinking about the general tone of this election and the extent to which health and social care have featured. SIVA, thinking about health and the NHS specifically, so they've been some of the main talking points of this election. So we've had the Prime Minister Boris Johnson talking about the NHS as one of the people's priorities alongside schools and police, and then we've had Jeremy Corbyn for Labour at various points describing this election as the NHS election. But perhaps because of all of this, we've heard criticism from some quarters uh, that the NHS is being overly politicised and being treated like a political football. What do you reckon's going on there and do you think that's a fair accusation?
1: So I've got to admit, I have quite a simple view on this. When you're spending £130 billion of public money on your health service, I just can't see how it wouldn't be a political issue yeah. uh, for any government of any, of any hue. So that's one thing. The second thing I'd say is, to be honest, the NHS has done pretty well out of being a political football. Mm-hmm. No doubt some of the extra money it gets is because parties are looking at demands on the service in the future. But some of that extra money comes because the parties want to outspend each other. So there are benefits of being a political football. But I think underpinning all of it is that there is this sense of unhelpfulness that the NHS isn't given a stable platform to plan its services over the next five to ten years. So I think there are some examples from other countries like Mexico, where they haven't done it for the whole health service, but they've done it for certain things like public health, where they've said, whatever party is in government, let's form some cross-party consensus Mm. on what the strategy is for the next five to ten years, and let's stick to that. So you depoliticise some elements of health spending without trying to depoliticise the whole thing.
0: And during this campaign, we've not really seen cross-party consensus in that way on the NHS. It's been sort of fighting for territory.
1: I think it has been fighting for territory. If you look at the manifestos, particularly around social care, there is talk of how we can build a cross-party consensus. But um, so I'm looking at Sally who is who is shooting me evils um, because I'm probably on a turf or <laughs> or she's eating something very, very odd. No. Okay. So so they talked about cross party consensus, uh, which is great in theory, in practice. Uh, you you do worry whether we've got uh, the right atmosphere to deliver anything on a cross party basis. I think that's that's in the highly risky box for me.
0: Mm. And you know, you've brought us on to social care very helpfully. So I noticed, Sally, although all the parties have included something on social care in their manifestos, it's just not been as, say, omnipresent as the NHS. Mm. What's that about, in your opinion? Is it that social care is just not a sexy enough topic when it comes to selling content to the electorate?
3: Yeah, so I think social care suffers on a couple of fronts in terms of being an election issue. The first is the public's complete passion for the NHS means that the focus on health does tend to be the focus on the NHS rather than our health and care system as a whole. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the public don't really understand that social care is separate means that political leaders don't feel the need to be talking about social care a lot. But I think particularly for this election as well, there is clearly a shadow from previous elections falling onto uh, the political parties. So 2017 and the Conservatives' proposals that very quickly were labelled a dementia tax has meant that a number of parties are very nervous about putting detailed proposals about reform on the table, so they're tending to step away from that detail.
0: Yeah. And Dave, what about wider health and well-being? We'll come on to the manifesto commitments in a bit, but... Has the focus on the NHS and then to a lesser extent social care meant that those other areas in the kind of wider health and wellbeing space, particularly public health and inequalities, they had less attention during this campaign And is, or is it in all campaigns we see that?
2: I think the answer is yes and yes. So it's interesting that today we're actually recording this at our annual conference and there's a debate already at the annual conference about, in a way, about the shadow that the NHS and social care to a lesser extent but mm-hmm. cast over uh public health and whether public health has a as a brand problem and lots of debate about that so it's good to be having that debate here at the king's fund but that debate is not happening out there in the conversation about mm-hmm. about the election yeah i think it to some extent it was ever thus and therefore there is a, there is an issue about that, about how we help politicians speak about the broader things that impact on the public's health beyond the NHS and social care. So that's not a surprise. It's a shame, but it's not a surprise. Although when we do come on to speak about some of the specifics, in the manifestos, there's actually quite a lot in, the man- in some of the manifestos, mm. uh, in, in the health bits of the manifestos per se on public health, but also more broadly across the manifestos. I think one issue is is actually a lot of the things that will impact on health are not seen as health issues. So okay, they are there, yeah. they're just not being discussed through a health lens.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. So you mean things, sort of the wider determinants of health, such as housing and education?
2: Absolutely, yeah. and, and and policies towards poverty, etc.
0: Okay, fantastic, thank you. So before we continue, just for the benefit of our listeners, I'd like to signpost you all to the election page of our website, where we've set out some of the main pledges from each of the parties in a very handy manifesto grid, and I think there's a link to that in the show notes, and then there's also a lot of other election content. So just to refer you all to that if you want more detail, thinking about the policies themselves... Sally, let's start with you. At the start of the election campaign, you set out the five things that you'd be hoping to see in the manifestos from a health and care perspective. Can you briefly run us through what... The, I guess they're the King's Fund's priorities. What, what are they?
3: Yes, of course. So right at the start of the campaign, I set out really a plea to say that health is much more than the NHS. So sort of anticipating that the NHS may well get a lot of political attention, but trying to say, actually, we need a much broader debate from our wow. political parties. And we set out, as you say, five priorities. The first was public health, where we wanted political parties to recognise that there was much more we could do upstream to help people be healthy, a second was social care where we needed to both think about how the current system can be supported having had many years of really tight funding positions but also think about long term reforms so to how to change the system to be fairer in the future. We then talked about mental health, which is an area that's become increasingly important over the last few years and talked about much more now than it ever has been before. But for there, a focus on helping children and young people with emerging mental health problems and also a real focus on the quality of specialist mental care services. Our fourth priority was workforce, because really we don't have a health and care system unless we have a trained um, and retained workforce. So a real challenge around how do we retain enough people to be able to deliver high quality care. And then finally, we wanted a, a transparent and clear funding position from all three parties for health and care as a whole, rather than just for some specific parts of NHS budgets.
0: Great that's really helpful and that sets the thematic approach we're going to take to the rest of this discussion. So Sivir, Dave, Sally no need to run through each of the commitments in the manifestos because that would take us a long time and we've got lots on the website on that but taking each of the themes that Sally set out in turn Sivir on funding NHS funding what's your take on the manifestos?
1: So on NHS funding my take is two things I think the first is that Uh, if you look at the party's overall plans for public spending, they are clearly in vastly different places. But if you look at their plans for health spending, they're actually closer than you might think. Mm -hmm. So everyone wants to grow health spending. They want to grow it by varying amounts. So um, the Labour Party looks like it's got the most generous proposals on the table Mm -hmm. of 4.3% growth each year over the next five years. Liberal Democrats coming in just behind at about 3.8%. Then you've got the Conservatives at 3.1%. That may not sound like a lot. It is a lot that difference when you're talking about £130 billion. Mm. But I think all of them are broadly in that middle territory of giving the NHS enough funding to keep the show on the road. It's not a bonanza of the Blair Brown years. It's not the austerity we saw uh, under the coalition government where funding was rising at about 1%. So I think the first take home is that everyone's broadly in the same place. But on funding, I think the second thing is, what what do you think you're getting for the money? And that is perhaps slightly uh, more worrying because everyone talks in slightly coded terms in their manifestos about improving performance, changing performance, restoring performance. And given the workforce issues Sally's already set out, Mm. I think you're on quite shaky ground if you think for the level of money you're going to be pouring in, whether A&E waiting times, hospital waiting times are really radically going to get better over the next five years.
0: Mm -hmm. And you're saying in part because there simply isn't the workforce and you can't magic that up quickly with money.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think if this was 15 years ago, you could have poured more money into the system. You could have found the staff. You could have asked existing staff Mm -hmm. to do extra sessions. Now I think you've, A, you've not got enough people because you've got 100,000 vacancies. Even if you were to press go on training new people now, it will take three to five years. So you're already at the end of the parliament Mm. before you start to see new people coming in. And with your existing workforce staff, good luck trying to get a surgeon to work uh, in an evening or on a weekend, given the potential likely impact on the pension. So I think you're quite boxed in on what this money can buy you. Welcome as it is.
0: Great. And Sally? With social care, you said, as you were articulating the kind of priorities that we have, that we were looking for both immediate investment to stabilise the system, but also then proposals for a new funding system in the longer term. Where do the manifestos leave us in relation to those things?
3: So we see quite a difference between the three parties in social care, actually, and some of the manifestos are quite disappointing when it comes to social care. So the Conservatives have committed to a billion pounds for social care. A really important caveat there, that is shared between children's and adult services, so more likely to be £500 million, and it doesn't increase over the course of Parliament, so it's not going to keep up with demography and inflation. Mm. So that isn't enough money to really... Uh, prop up the existing system and for long-term reform the Conservatives have said they want to uh, move towards uh, cross-party consensus with their red line being nobody should have to sell their house to pay for care that's disappointing on a number of levels one is around how narrow that framing is that social care is much more than uh, about people having to sell their house but also we've been promised a green paper by this government for two and a half years so there's a sense of how long do we need to wait to see some proposals from them. The Liberal Democrats, I think, kind of sit in the middle here in in the manifestos on social care. So they have committed to significantly more funding for the adult social care system, in particular using some of the £7 that they'll raise through the one penny on income tax to support the system. So we think that's a reasonable amount of money to keep the current system going. But again, their long-term reform is a bit disappointing. It's seeking a convention to drive to cross-party consensus, with their starting point being a good policy, which is a cap on social care. But again, we would have liked to have seen more urgency and pace in their proposals. But it's clear to me that the Labour Party has the most comprehensive package for adult social care. So that's a large amount of money for the current system, the most generous of the three, to enable it to keep pace with demographic change and inflation. And then a really firm set of proposals about what their long-term reform option will be, which is introducing free personal care for people over 65 and considering the evidence about introducing that for working age adults as well combined with a cap on the costs of social care which aren't free personal care. Mm -hmm. So I think for me there's a something really important about the Labour Party have despite social care quite often being a real challenge in elections they have gone as far as putting a firm proposal on the on the table which I think is is really welcome.
0: And so in terms of where those those proposals leave us, it's not the first time that we've heard plans or proposals for finding a long-term funding solution. Should we feel optimistic regardless of who gets into government?
3: To be honest, I don't think we should feel optimistic. Mm-hmm. I think there's a real risk that the kind of commitments to cross-party consensus, particularly when you look at the type of politics we have at the moment in the last few years, don't particularly feel to me to be uh, the kind of uh, an environment in which you're likely to get cross-party consensus. So I think the risk is that there's further delay and, and maybe debate but actually that we don't move forward to a solution. And the really important thing here is we can quite often talk in kind of quite abstract ways about cross-party solutions and green papers, but we've got to remember right now there's 1.4 million older people with unmet need Mm. because the social care system is not fit for purpose. There's 600 people a day who leave their job to become an informal carer, partly because they cannot rely on the formal care system. There is real cost every single day of our failing social care system. So when we say we're frustrated by delay, it's not because we're policy geeks frustrated that there isn't a white paper that we can kind of really delve into. It's because we see and hear the consequence of a failure to reform uh, on a daily basis.
0: So a real impact on, on real people. Absolutely. And Dave, you're a resident public health and health inequalities expert. To what extent are you satisfied that the manifestos recognise the importance of health beyond the NHS?
2: Again, like Sally, I think there's quite a lot of difference here between the manifestos. So uh, I'll start with bad stuff, and but then there is some good stuff. So so we've called for a health and equality strategy across government mm-hmm. because it is so critical. Talking about figures, we, we know that in certain parts of the country people live seven to eight years, fewer length of life in terms of age and twenty years less in, in good health. That's absolutely scandalous. Yeah. And in order to uh, to really deliver on doing something about that, our view is actually you need a cross-government health inequality strategy because because it is, is in the hands of all of government supporting local areas, local communities and the local system. So that is not that is not in any of the manifestos. Right. However both the Liberal Democrats and the Labour manifestos include some things which you would want in a health inequality strategy. In particular, the Labour manifesto is talking about possibly a version in England of, of the Welsh Future Generations Act, mm-hmm. which is a legislative approach, but is, is thought to be quite a good approach. The Liberal Democrat manifesto is talking about well-being in all policies. Mm-hmm. So more for those that know, uh, New Zealand Treasury have taken a lead on ensuring that all spend or at least all new spend has a focus on well being wherever it comes from across across government. And both of them commit separately, or they're clearly linked to both of these sort of mechanisms, to a health in all policies approach across government. Mm-hmm. So if that becomes true then we could actually, they, that could be really significant. Of course, the the issue is what does that really mean and how do you make it true? Mm. But both parties have committed. In contrast, the Conservative manifesto is very silent on this sort of stuff, doesn't talk about it. However, they have their um, prevention consultation out at the moment and there is a phrase saying we will create a long-term strategy to empower people with lifestyle-related conditions to live healthier lives. Although, as you will notice by the phrasing, that's very much about individual uh, responsibility as opposed to the wider role of, of, of government policy okay. and everything else in society. And then finally, both Labour and Liberal Democrats have committed, given what Siv was saying about keeping the show on the road, the, the car has veered off the road in terms of public health spending, sort of we're actually spending a lot less in real terms and in cash terms than we were 2013-14 but both the liberal democrats and labor party committed to put that money back into the system which is something that we jointly called for with the health foundation and alongside other charities so that's at least around a billion pounds annually to the public health grant and finally separately to that the local government as a whole has had a huge reduction in its yeah. in its spending power i think about 30% in its overall spending power mm-hmm. has managed to actually a lot of the money it has had into social care keeping that going but not enough but the rest of local government spending has really suffered and labour says that they will take that back to the 2010 real spend although it hasn't really given many details or i haven't seen a specific costing so there is stuff in the manifestos and as i've said before there's a lot of stuff around so for your pains if you want to see the big picture you probably have to read the whole lot which is not fun I can I can uh, I can testify but if those particular future generations at health and all policies and and a focus on well-being if that if that really comes to fruition under either Labour or Liberal Democrat then there is real opportunity here.
0: Okay so you sound more positive about the Labour and Lib Dem manifestos in, in regard to the inequalities in public health prevention um, strategy. I
2: think potentially, yeah. because we don't know the real detail, what does that really mean? Yeah. But there are, there are mechanisms there that you yeah. can see, aha, this might I'm like Alan Partridge there, apologies. <laughs> but there are ways into yeah. tackling public and population issues, and, and particularly health inequality. So there was a real disappointment that they have not really committed to a national health inequality strategy. All parties. No no, yeah. no parties, yeah. although Labour has a section on health inequalities, it talks about what we've just talked about, the Future Generations Act, and a child health strategy, which is, again, not a bad thing, mm. but doesn't really bite the bullet.
3: But I think we get quite a good flavour through the manifestos about what the health in all policies may well mean yeah. that sits behind uh, Labour and Liberal Democrat thinking. So th- there's a very long list of commitments in, in Labour and Lib Dems about a whole host of things, which about recognising that this is an individual choice children are not choosing to be obese yeah. parents are not choosing for their children to be obese there's a whole set of things about the environment they live in and the choices that are legitimately available to them yeah but i think we're seeing um, a number of commitments whether that's around advertising food whether it's around active travel whether it's um fast food near schools where we're seeing quite a uh, all-encompassing approach to not leaving it to the individual recognizing the kind of economy and society uh, aspect to it so in that sense i think that's an encouraging window into some of the thinking about what would health and all policies really mean
0: and just on the the one billion public health grant to local authorities so you mentioned obviously the the cuts to local authority budgets and and we've seen them have an impact in terms of cuts to to services public health services that are provided by local authorities or arranged by local authorities with the one billion given the level of cuts and the time during which that's happened would the one billion be enough to to get those services back
2: that's a great question and um I think it's very hard to tell whether it would be be enough, and also how quickly can you spend it. That's mm. the other question. The same with the all all spending. So you don't want to just flood the system with cash and, and not spend it properly. So there is a there is a timing issue here, but it would certainly make a big difference. And we do know from work from the Centre for Health Economics at the University of York that this the bunch of services in the public health grant are in terms of if you're really interested in improving health, are three to four times as cost effective as if you stuck that same money into the into the NHS baseline spend let's say the average spend in the nhs so as a means to improving health of the population the public health grant is a really good buy as are many other things that aren't in the public health Mm. grant a bargain so it's a bargain it's quite small It's peanuts in in whole spend terms so there is something i agree there is something about how do we how do we make that case more persuasively to politicians
0: And Sivert, you mentioned workforce briefly earlier, but obviously the health and care workforce are under enormous pressure right now. Now that we've seen the manifestos, tell us, are you optimistic that the word crisis will soon become a thing of the past in terms of how we refer to the workforce and the the situation with the health and care workforce?
1: So you know me, and I'm not optimistic (laughs) about anything, but I'm, I'm marginally more optimistic having read the manifestos. Every one of the major political parties is promising more. More nurses, more physiotherapists, more uh, general practitioners. And they hope to get there in different ways. So Labour is proposing bringing back some of the bursaries for NHS nurses, for example. The Lib Dems don't go quite as far and are promising more targeted bringing back of financial support to make to, that you train as a nurse. But there's clearly some thought that's gone on here to say, We're in a hole. We need more staff and we need to pull as many levers as we can. Uh, I think what's disappointing is, firstly, the level of expectation that you're going to get 50,000, 24,000 more nurses, I think, is vastly optimistic. So as an ambition, great. But what's the actual plan for the service, given you're not going to get those nurses in time? What does it mean for the quality of services, what does it, how do you manage in the interim. The second thing is there's relatively little said about how you use your existing staff. Mm-hmm. So uh, at the moment if you wander around the NHS everyone's talking about how in primary care you can bring different groups of professionals together to deliver better more coordinated services around patients and the manifestos seem to be more in the place of can we just get more staff in to deliver the existing business model. But the bit that gives me optimism is I never thought I'd see a manifesto where uh, support for care workers, support for the people in that part of the sector is given such prominence in some of these manifestos, which is one sign to me that you're starting to think a little bit more about health and care as uh, a joined-up sector, rather than thinking, let's just get more nurses on hospital wards and that will solve all the problems we have.
0: OK, Sally, coming on to mental health and wellbeing. So that was another one of our priority areas. What are the manifestos offering here?
3: So there's, uh, there's some commonality across all three manifestos and then uh, we start to see some difference. So I think the first thing I'd say is just actually it's really positive that all three manifestos talk about mental health. This is not something that I think if we looked back 10, 15 years would have been a, a, a common feature in manifestos. So I think that's a really good sign about how attitudes towards mental health uh, have really shifted in our political leaders and also in society as a whole. But when we look at what's common across all three, all three commit to parity of esteem between mental health and physical health, that phrase that we've heard for quite a long time now. They all commit to some form of legislation broadly based on accepting the reviews of the Mental Health Act, which is all positive. And all three in some way commit to tackling what's been the real scandal in learning disabilities and autism services where far too many young people are being kept in inappropriate settings quite often far away from home where the quality has not been good enough so commitments to support those individuals to move back to their communities and be supported there. So that's already positive but that's then where the commonality stops. We then don't have any more detail really from the Conservatives about what more they would do to really bring to life the reality of the parity of esteem claim. But we do then have a number of commitments from Labour and the Lib Dem. So from Labour, some of this is about increasing spending on CAM services, having a 24-7 crisis service for talking therapies, uh, and also some specific commitments on some specialist areas, so eating disorder services for example. So a kind of wide range of action to support mental health across the piece. The Liberal Democrats again have commitments to improve access to talking therapies, some of that particularly looking at areas uh, of our society that might have Struggle to be able to access services. uh, Commitment to invest in the physical infrastructure in our mental health services, which is absolutely critical because we do have some absolutely shocking physical facilities. But I think one of the really interesting things about the Lib Dem proposals on mental health, which does stand out from the others, is that they are also saying that they want to make sure a fair proportion of health research spending is spent on mental health rather than physical health. And I think that's a really important um, side as well because actually, if if we're constantly spending our research money on physical health issues we're never going to have the kind of evidence based to understand how we can better support people with mental health issues. Yeah
0: so some reason to be overall optimistic just because of the fact that uh, mental health is present in all of the manifestos and that's something that's relatively new.
3: Yeah I think so. Yeah. And
0: actually you mentioned infrastructure which reminds me just to Siv a question for you on we talked about funding NHS funding but is there anything you want to add in terms of improving the the NHS estate and what money has been, what resources have been committed to there in the manifestos?
1: Sure. Well, everyone wants to do it. Everyone wants to improve the NHS estate. So the Liberal Democrats have proposed £10 billion of extra spending over the next Parliament. Labour top that and say £15 billion. The Conservative Party is recommitted to build those six new hospital facilities with the potential for a further 34 uh, and, I, you know, I think, again, capital funding for buildings and equipment is not something that would have been writ large in a manifesto, so I think it's welcome recognition that the NHS has some absolutely knackered estate, mm. um, six billion pound backlogs, that you would need to invest huge sums of money just to make the premises safe for staff and patients, which is a bad place to be in. Uh, So I think, again, a story of some variation across the parties, but they're broadly in the same place of recognizing you need to invest more
0: Great, thank you. So we're now going to have a quick fire round. This is just, you know, a little bit of fun. So (laughs) I've got one (laughs) question. (laughs) (laughs) Fun for me. One question to each of you on some of the interesting issues that have come up during the election. Dave, I'd like to start with you. So is it time to bring drug policy under the responsibility of the Department of Health and Social Care as the Lib Dems are proposed?
2: That's a great question. Not a quick fire response, but I'll do my (laughs) best. So I think more broadly, this is a a, a sign of a, a more mature approach across quite a lot of really tricky issues, which are not sometimes not seen as health issues but clearly are health issues to move towards a harm reduction approach as opposed to possibly prohibition so we've seen some of that already in tobacco control policy Mm -hmm. so the introduction of e-cigarettes I know that's really controversial there are different views on that but that one way to see that is as harm reduction as opposed to prohibition or or cessation all the manifestos talk about gambling in this way which Mm -hmm. is really interesting a public health approach to gambling which means move upstream, look at prevention, look at the risks, as well as focusing on the consequences. And variously, in the, particularly Labour and Liberal Democrats, looking at addiction, various forms of addiction, and also violence, public health approaches to violence. So having said that, I think there is a case for it, but it's clearly a really tricky issue. And we don't have a particular position on this at the fund at the moment. But there is definitely a case for it, if you think about harm reduction as yeah. the key it's the key issue
0: Fantastic, thank you, so the
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Privatisation—the the big P word—it's come up a lot in terms of you know, Labour have talked a lot about it. Is it happening? Might it happen? What's going on?
1: This is quickfire. Yeah. So the quickfire <laughs> response is yes, privatisation exists in the NHS. It has existed you know, for, since the fifties, so so it's not new. I think underlying this is—is is there too much privatisation? Is it growing out of control? data really hard to get on a comparable basis but from what we do have i think the answer is no you haven't got rampant privatization of services i realize this is not going to make me the most popular person uh in some quarters but uh, the third thing is so labor have been the clearest on what their plans for privatization are and you could get one read from the manifesto that's a little bit confusing against other commitments. So how do you reduce waiting times? Mm. How do you do all these other reforms you want at the same time as asking the NHS to bring back uh, a lot of these services in the house? Are you gonna nationalize GPs? I think if you look at the communication around the manifesto, there's a lot more pragmatism uh, on show over what rowing back on privatization would mean in practice, things like reducing competitive tendering. So that again was a long answer, but uh, is there privatisation? Yes. Is it rampantly under control? Probably not.
0: And just very briefly, you talk about rowing back in, in Labour's manifesto. Is there any manifesto, is there any political party where you see symptoms or suggestions that there's going to be some vast rowing forward of privatisation?
1: No, no. At least not from the three main parties, actually. they If you look at competitive tendering... Uh, Again, the strange things that are included in manifestos these days, all of them provide coded references to ending competitive tendering of Mm -hmm. services. So they all seem to be in the same place on that.
0: Great, thank you. And Sally, you've got reorganisation of the NHS, so legislative change. So I want to ask you, is it time for wholesale reform as per the Labour manifesto? I think I know the answer. Or do you favour an incremental approach as proposed by NHS England and NHS Improvement, and I think supported by the Conservatives in their manifesto?
3: So the quickfire answer is, it's absolutely not the time for wholesale change in Mm -hmm. the NHS right now. So just to expand on that a little bit, an incremental approach is absolutely the right thing to do. So the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats have both, with slightly different language, committed to supporting NHS England's and NHS Improvement's proposals for legislative change. So we think that's the right first step the Labour proposals risk being a a really quite massive change in the NHS, which we know from previous really quite massive changes, really distract us from delivering. So given what we need to, what the frontline needs to deliver to improve quality and improve access, we think that would be a major distraction. But I will just say there is one important thing when we think about legislation and reorganisation. We do at the moment have an NHS system that spends £130 billion worth of taxpayers' money, and we have a number of planning processes that involve I'm struggling to use the word body because they do not exist in legislation or in statute. They are kind of make-believe gatherings of people. Ideas. Ideas. Gatherings of people around a table that are making decisions about an awful lot of public money. That is not a sustainable position to be in. So we will have to have legislation over the course of this parliament that helps put a stronger statutory framework around the emerging ways that we're working in an integrated way. So it, it absolutely anybody looking outside of the NHS will find it very, very hard to imagine a world where you can spend £130 billion through non-statutory mm-hmm. bodies. Yeah,
0: fantastic, thank you. So I think one point to each of you there, that was very good. End of the quickfire round. So... I also just want to spend a bit of time thinking about what happens after the election. I know it doesn't, it feels right now like the election campaign will never end. We're in the thick of it. But obviously looking ahead, it, it will end come December the 12th and December the 13th, there'll be a new government in power. So obviously manifestos are just the first step in terms of governing, but delivering on the commitments that they set is a whole other thing. And you've each spent time working in the civil service at different points during your careers. And I assume each of you have been involved to some extent in delivering on manifesto pledges. So... What comes next for civil servants?
3: The civil servants will be using the pre-election period to frantically plan for as much as they can for December the 13th. So they will right now have red, blue and yellow briefs, which is their interpretation of what the manifestos mean. They have been allowed to have opposition party talk. So some of their understanding may well have been enhanced by those confidential discussions. Mm -hmm. And what they'll be doing is trying to interpret what are the real world implications and choices that need to be made in manifestos. So they can have really early discussions to agree relative priorities, because there's an awful lot in these manifestos. They cannot all be delivered in the first three months, 12 months, two years. So it'll be trying to get a sense of uh, pace and ambition over the course of the Parliament. They'll also be trying to get a sense of how do the different political parties really work. So to the extent of who are some of the key external influences that help inform decisions. So they'll be thinking about who are the external stakeholders we should be getting in to talk early to a new Secretary of State or a returning Secretary of State to help inform the discussion. And it's also important to say that there will be a long list of things that civil servants need answers from from ministers because they haven't had any really active ministers over the pre-election period that will have nothing to do with the manifesto. It will be core business of a Department of State that will be quite a long list quite often Mm. and that can be a shock to ministers particularly if they're new to the department of health so they'll be trying to balance all of that with clearly the other aspect they'll be balancing is if there was a hung parliament outcome what might the combination of red yellow and blue mean in terms of likely policy commitments
0: okay and silver
1: yeah so i think So I remember going through a period where you try and work out what does the minister actually, the new incoming minister, what do they actually really care about? And I remember when Norman Lamb came in and started talking about mental health, there was a period where you thought, oh, he's just talking about mental health. And then it became clear, no, he really does care about mental health. This is a priority. And then you go through another process of, well, what's actually going to happen? And that partly depends on... Do we have a government with a massive majority, a small majority, or are we back in hung parliament territory? Which really did change the energy in the department from one of vim and vigor and we've got an agenda to deliver to we've got something to negotiate here. What can you actually get away with? Uh, But the one thing I'd say is actually trying to be, again, more optimistic and positive. All the parties that have promised cross-party talks or proposals on social care reform you can still do that even if you're not the party of government you've identified the need to come together to solve the biggest policy problem of our time so there's still an opportunity to deliver that regardless of what sort of parliament we get if you really want to do it
0: and in terms of relationships within the ministerial the new ministerial team presumably there's work for civil servants to kind of try to understand who has influence within that team despite their position. Obviously, you'll have a Secretary of State who has more influence over the team, but then various junior ministers will be potentially vying for position or or are in or out of favour.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So you'll find secretaries of state work in very different ways. So there's in my time in the civil service worked with some S- secretaries of state who were very much consensus builders around their junior minister mm-hmm. or team. They'd meet very regularly. It was, it was very much a team effort worked for other secretaries of the state where they basically never spoke to their junior ministers. They were clear about the areas of work that they were prepared to delegate and that was all the junior ministers were doing and all other decisions were concentrated in the Secretary of State. Do you want to give names? Uh, no, <laughs> I'm not going to give names, Ellen. <laughs> Thanks for the offer, though. So I think that that kind of style of working can change quite dramatically with individual secretaries of state. And it does change the tempo and the way of working in the department. So if I do give one specific example, which is about an individual secretary of state style of behaviour, I remember when Jeremy Hunt came into the Department of Health He'd come from DCMS and he said, I've got five priorities. I'm going to have a meeting every Monday on each of my five priorities. And all of us in the Department of Health went, yeah, 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 lovely. Well, (laughs) yeah, that sounds great, Jeremy. And then the reality of you being the health secretary will kick in and you'll realise there's far too much to do. You won't be able to do it. When he left six years later, he had held meetings on a Monday on every single one of his priorities for the entire six years. So he absolutely stuck to his way of working, and it had a huge consequence for the way of working in the department as a whole and out to the arms length bodies as well.
0: Okay, so final question from me. Is there any policy or idea that you hope we're not still talking about come the next election? So one from each of you, please, starting with Silver.
1: So for me it is hospital car parking. Not not because it isn't an, an important issue, I think it, you know, genuinely is an important issue. But uh I I am still naive enough to believe the manifestos should be your grand vision for where the country is mm-hmm. going, where the health service is going. And hospital car parking is something any government of the day can decide to solve in year. Yeah. Any year it wants to. So I hope we're not sat here in five years' time talking about car parking, mm-hmm. or one year's time, whenever the next election is.
0: That's a good example. Thank you. Dave?
2: I, I, I guess one, one thing, we haven't talked about this very much, I mentioned it very briefly, was, was, the, was e-cigarettes. So I, I hope that the debate has moved on and that we have a much clearer knowledge base and a much clearer policy towards them, because they are sort of devices that potentially could be really... Uh, are could be continue to be really significant but we haven't really got a clear policy direction for them if Mm -hmm. if if as the current government states that half of health inequalities in terms of life expectancy are due to smoking yeah then it would be i'd hope we will have moved on whatever the answer is we'll have moved on we'll have made the decision we will have implemented it around around tobacco Mm -hmm. but particularly cigarettes
0: and sally
3: Mine, unsurprisingly, is going to be social care. So I very much hope at whatever point the next election is, we're no longer debating what the right structure of a new social care system is, that we've got a consensus around the right funding model. And that would then allow us to talk about social care in manifestos in an election in a way much more akin to how we talk about the NHS, so we can talk about quality, how we can support our workforce, what we we want to do to improve access, uh, how we can really support independent living in the community for older people and working age adults so i really hope we it's not that we're silent on social care in five years time but the the nature of the conversation has moved on because we've then got a certain funding structure that we don't have to keep questioning
0: well i hope that all your dreams come true come the next election (laughs) So, that's it from us, thanks to our guests, Sally Warren, Sivrin and Siva, and Dave Buck. And also huge thanks to our podcast producers, Ian Ford and Sarah Murphy. You can find more of our work on the election in the show notes. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you, and it helps others find the podcast too. If you have feedback or ideas for topics you'd like to hear covered in future episodes, then please get in touch, either on Twitter, at The King's Fund, or my account, at Elena Macarena. Hope you can join us next time.